Let's, uh, let's get started and start moving through this material. So what tonight is going to... Actually, I'm curious, is, is this anybody's first night? Nice. Epic. Love it. All right. I feel like by, the, I feel like by week three, I should stop introducing myself, but um, we've also had equipping classes where... Uh, like halfway through the equipping class, the teacher just kind of launched into it. And then at the end of the class there, somebody raised their hand and they're like, yeah, yeah, you. And they're like, what's your name? (laughs) (laughs) So my name's Nathan and I'm on staff here at Watermark. If you can't tell by the shirt and uh, I serve on the equipping team, I I lead this ministry, which is the core classes and the apologetics team, the great questions class. And then I also oversee the Equip Disciple Ministry, which is doing a uh, chili party in the room over across the hall. So, part, I'm to be honest, part of me wishes I was over there eating some awesome chili. But my wife uh, was good to me and fixed dinner before I came up here. So, anyway, let me pray for our time just briefly, and then we'll launch into this. Well, Jesus, we know and believe that um, you've ordained this time, that there are people sitting in here who myself included, who um, part of our view of you is skewed, and we need you to fix it. And um, we know that you can, only you can do that through the power of your Spirit. I pray that tonight would be informative, instructive, edifying, encouraging, challenging, um, that, we'd, uh, that this would not just be another time that we come up to Watermark and open your Bible and read the book and go home, um, but that you would meet us here. And um, we need you to do that. So... We offer you this time. We acknowledge that you, um, only you, through the power of your Spirit, are the teacher. So we look to you in your name. Amen. Okay, anybody want to real quickly share? Um, Chris, do you want to get up and do kind of the same thing you were doing before? There's a mic over here. It's a red mic, and then there's one right over here that's a green mic. Um, Brian, hey, Brian, do you mind doing the same thing on the green mic there? Anybody want to share real quick just kind of about your table discussion? Anybody have a burning desire to... Just talk through, how do you think society views miracle? I mean, if... if uh, yeah, perfect. That may be a little hot, too. Um, but, loud. yeah, just don't hold it right up to your mouth. But <laughs> Anybody want to share it? Yeah, perfect. Tell us your name, and then... Uh, my name is Mallory. Um, at my table, we were talking about the fact that um, my father is a very, like, avid atheist. And so mm-hmm. when I thought about how he would answer this question... One, he wouldn't use the word miracle because it would have the connotation of a spiritual divine purpose, but he would call it a coincidence, and he would say that it's something that science can't prove Mm -hmm. because he's very scientific and numbers-based. So we talked about how that's how atheists might view something. Yeah, perfect. I think that's pretty common. I mean, I I think if if the nightly news were going to report on a – Miracle, they would probably frame it in that type of language. Um, definitely in the West and definitely in the 21st century kind of uh, postmodern age um, that we live in. Good. Thanks. Melody, right? Mallory, sorry. Mallory, thank you. Anybody else? How, how, anybody want to share just personally, I mean, how, how you view miracle? Somebody reports a miracle, like what comes through your head when you read when you read the Bible and miracle shows up in the Bible, kind of what what do you think about when when you read that? You kind of gloss over it or is it shocking or not shocking or anybody want to share? Uh, 
All right, yeah, sweet. Chris, right over here. Uh, my name's name, Mitchell. Mitchell, sweet. Or Mitch, whichever Mitch. one. All right. Um, so it's not really a personal thing, but I just kind of the, what took up most of the time here was, you know, like you mentioned, the 21st century, like with miracles, that word is kind of just tossed around a lot. You know, we use it every day, like, oh, my cat returned home. It's a miracle, <laughs> right? Versus, you know, all the way, yeah, yeah, yeah pray, you know, PTL, right? Um, or... <laughs> Clearly, God brought that cat Right, home. exactly. Yeah. Or like, oh, I passed this exam. Hey, you know. And, or it goes all the way to the, yeah. you know, the extreme of you know, somebody with, you know, I don't know, a, a, a cancer, stage five cancer, mm-hmm. right? And they survive and they live through it. Like, that's a miracle. And mm-hmm. I think a lot in the West, we are just brainwashed, not brainwashed, but we're just so used to hearing that word every day mm-hmm. that when something truly miraculous does happen, it doesn't really, you know, have a strong impact on us because we're just. I mean, we're just used to hearing that, oh, it's a miracle, that happened. Oh, cool, great, good, miracle. Like, but what really is a miracle from God? Like Jesus yeah. raising yeah. Lazarus, for example, from the dead. Like that's a miracle. Yep. So that's, that's what we talk good, about. man, yeah. So I was chatting with a table over here. Um, I kind of walked in the room, and I was like, oh, they're tucked away in the corner in the dark. You know, I'm going to go sit with them. So, um, But no, I, I was uh, glad to listen in on their conversation, and, and uh, that was – one of the things um, that that was you know mentioned over there too is is it yeah I mean obviously um, culture frames the conversation but then also I think in the West um, we we have so much capacity to measure things and then also the material goods uh, a roof over your head clothes on your back food in your belly I mean um, there, there's not a whole lot of need so that when we do use the word we typically use it for someone's cat being saved or something like that. However, in other cultures, they may use the word in saying, like, I didn't know how I was going to eat today, and I got a meal, and that's a miracle, you know. So, um, obviously, different meanings. And I, and I think, too, um, for, uh, it was also mentioned at the table that, that I think when someone actually does encounter something that even, like Mallory was saying, um, science doesn't know, have an explanation for it, like someone being healed of stage 4 cancer, and it's like, hey, I literally was about to die. Your tumor was there. It was about to kill you, and now it's gone, right? Science might say, we don't have an explanation for this, um, but as science progresses, we believe we will ultimately find an explanation for it um, in nature. And um, what, what's fascinating is, as we were talking about that type of situation, th- those people who encounter that are much more apt to raise their hand and go, um, I have a personal experience with this. I do believe in miracle, right? And so a lot of it, it, it yeah, it's, it's framed by your own perception of reality, your own uh, theological framework or lack of the theological framework, your own worldview, your own experience. All those things bleed into, in, into what we think about when we think about miracle. <laughs> I want to cover, and this is what tonight's time is going to look like for the next hour and six minutes is uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover uh, some basic assumptions that I think a lot of people work out of and, and that, are, that are common mistakes when it comes to miracle. And then I want to paint a picture of what the Bible or the biblical view of miracle is so that we're not confusing it. So I'm, I'm basically going to define it. What is a miracle? So we're not confusing it with all the other competing ideas around. And then we're going to launch through and look at five different passages in the Gospels uh, whereby Jesus was doing things that would be considered miracle, 
And then I'll let you guys unpack that at your tables, and then I'll come back, come back and tie up our time tonight. So that's what the rest of the night's going to look like. All right. The, the first common mistake I would say that gets made a lot is, is the assumption of impossibility. That this is exactly what Mallory just said. This is the scientist, the, the, and, and really, not, I'm not, not just scientist. I mean scientist whose religion is science. That's what I mean by that. It's the naturalist. It's the person who says there is no God. All we have is nature. All there is that exists are things that we can, uh, that we can experience with our five senses, the things I can touch, see, taste, hear, and smell, and things that I can put into a test tube and, and put, that, put those things through a scientific method, repeatability, so that I can gain knowledge about those things. And while the, while the scientist or the naturalist would tell you, yeah, there's definitely things in nature that we can't understand yet, they'll also say there's nothing outside or super. And what I mean by that is over and above nature. Nature is literally all that there is. So... The, C.S. Lewis, I think, is helpful, and that's why I had Sylvia, um, one of our team members on the E-team, printed off all the stuff for you. So if you see Sylvia, say, thank you for printing this stuff off for me. But there's a, an article that C.S. Lewis wrote in a book called God in the Dock, and it's called, it's titled Miracles, and that's the one that you have uh, sitting on your table. If you don't have one, they're in the back. I'd encourage you to get them. But I would encourage you to, to take that home and read it. Uh, I think Lewis does a really good job. Of, of unpacking what exactly the Christian claim of miracle is. So the problem with naturalism, among many of them, all right, is, is this. C.S. Lewis said, if the, quote, natural means that which we can, can be fitted into a class, that which obeys a norm, that which can be paralleled, that which can be explained by reference to other events, then nature herself as a whole is not natural. If a miracle means that which must simply be accepted, the unanswerable actuality which gives no account of itself but simply is, then the universe, our very existence, is one great miracle. That, that's a lot of times what, what the naturalist misses, is that the fact that they exist, the fact that the universe is, and has uh, and just gives no explanation for itself by its very nature has only happened once, then the universe is one grand miracle. And so a lot of times the naturalist looks, is, is so busy looking at uh, uh, the intricacies of nature and attempting to find explanation for it, and, and in so doing, denying that miracle is even possible, um, it, it misses the forest for the trees. And so, obviously... Uh, the other problem with naturalism is it refutes itself, right? Um, naturalism would say, hey, the, um, uh, there is, uh, the, nature itself began in a, a random uh, uh, action of events that just happened to be pieced together. Um, all of it was chance. There's nothing outside of it. There's no meaning that's bled into it. It just is a random uh, accident. Well, if the beginning of nature started as a random accident... Then, then, then that uh, that then delineates that everything from that that first random accident is also a random accident. You, you don't have some something. You don't have meaning come out of non-meaning, and so which frankly 
Um, when you unpack that and naturalism begins to take all this ground and say, no, we have an explanation for this, we have an explanation for this, they have an explanation for this, well, ultimately, naturalism does not have an explanation for thought itself. Right? Because if your thought was just the random accident um, and the random byproduct of chemicals going on in your brain that was an accident previous to that, that was an accident previous to that, that was an accident previous to that, ad nauseum all the way back until the Big Bang, Right, which was random and, and which begs the question, what, what was before the Big Bang? Why did the Big Bang happen? Then, then ultimately, um, thought itself is an accident. And if thought is an accident, why should we trust it? Right? So when I, typically when I talk to a naturalist, and, and I, um, I do because of the nature of my job, then they'll make these claims of meaning, and all you have to do is just ask them, hey, how do you know that? Well, because of this. Well, how do you know that? Well, because of this. Well, how do you know that? And you just continue to ask why, like my three-year-old does. Why, Daddy? Why, Daddy? Why? 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 And I find myself explaining, like, the history of the universe to my three-year-old son, you know? Why? Why? Because that's all he knows how to ask. But it's a great tactic for, for these guys because ultimately they'll get back to the very beginning of their, their thought process and ultimately say, I don't know. Right? Which then makes it really clear that they also are making a faith statement in what the foundation of their belief is, i.e., for example, their thought process itself. Are you, are you tracking with me? Okay, so um, the, the assumption of impossibility it also um, is, is based on a, a, a massive amounts of, of assumptions that um, that assumes that we have all of the information. So the person who says, hey, it is impossible for miracle to exist, then really what they're saying is, I have exhaustive knowledge of everything in the universe so that I can say with certainty that this is impossible. Right? And so even, even for, for a person who's a skeptic, they're making a very unskeptical claim. Right? So at least... For the naturalist, they, at least the naturalist needs to be open to the possibility of miracle, right? which is what I would challenge. You know, I'm sure, Melody, I'm sure your dad's a great dude. I'm sure he is. But his way of thinking, that's, that's, that's what I would challenge. Um, for people who um, are seemingly open to um, any possibility, then uh, that seems to be a fairly dogmatic statement. Secondly, I would say a lot of people think of miracles, even if they do believe in miracle, they, they, they think of miracles in the same vein as they would think of like an arbitrary fairy tale, like, a, uh, like a, 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 a princess kisses a frog and it turns into a prince, and uh, uh, men turn into trees, and, or trees walk and talk, or um, dragons fly, or something like that. It's, it's kind of this like, it's removed from me. There's something so abnormal about it that I can't connect with it. So it's kind of, even though it doesn't, it kind of still fits into that arbitrary fairy tale kind of category that's in my mind. So when I read the story about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead or healing the lepers or um, raising the, the you know, widow's son from the dead or feeding the 5,000 or something like that. It's kind of like, okay, yeah, I guess he's God. He can do that. But, but, if, you're, but if you're actually like placing yourself in the story, there's a, there's a real shock factor there for us because it, it is so abnormal. It's not something you experience every day. And, and so we, a lot of times we struggle to, to have any kind of personal connection to what Jesus is doing 
Because we do think of it as like, well, okay, I guess I believe it, but I mean, you know, if, if a lot of us, if we're really being honest, sometimes we struggle with that because we are conditioned by our culture. We are conditioned by the prevailing thought of the day that would say, no, there's always a natural explanation for everything. And, and obviously it's almost becomes like nature becomes God. Well, again, Lewis, I think is helpful here for us. And, and he says, he, he's like, hey, you're not going to find any miracle of that kind, the arbitrary ones in the gospels. Such things, if they could be, would prove that some alien power was invading nature. In other words, we would have to say if there were trees walking around, if there were dragons flying, if, if, if frogs were turning into princes, we would have to say, okay, something outside of uh, nature is, is now in, invading us and is like taking over, right? Because this is not how, how nature normally works. Um, it, uh, trees don't walk. Um, frogs don't turn into princes. Um, dragons don't exist. Uh, Komona dragons do, right? But dragons with like scales, like uh, you know, the Lord of the, or the Hobbit, right? Uh, the Desolation of Smaug. You guys like that movie? Anyway, whatever. I totally digress. <clears throat> um, I like it. <clears throat> Uh, it, it, it would prove that some alien power was invading nature. They would not in the least prove that it was the same power which had made nature and rules her every day. But, but the true miracles express not simply a God, but God, that which is outside nature, not as a foreigner, but as her sovereign. They announce not merely that a king has visited our town, but that it is the king, our king. So here's what Lewis is saying is that in the Gospels, you don't see Jesus... Uh, in fact, the, the, the temptation of Jesus in the desert, what does the, the enemy ask Jesus to do? He's like, if you are the Son of God, which is an interesting question, right? His, his temptation for him is challenging his identity, um, which is fascinating. If, if you think the enemy is going to challenge Jesus primarily on his identity, where do you think he's going to hit you? Right? Primarily on your identity as a son or daughter of God. So just, you might want to put that in your kit. Remember that, <laughs> All right? Sorry, it's military lingo. Um, you might want to remember that. That's a good tool, useful tool. But, but Satan comes to Jesus and he says, if you are the son of God, make these stones what? Turn into bread, right? But in nature, do stones ever turn into bread? That should be an easy question to answer. No, they don't. Okay, you're like, hmm, you know, is this this a trick question? The answer is no, they don't. And Jesus refuses to do that because he knows that that would be arbitrary. So when Jesus does feed the 5,000, what does he use? He uses elements that already exist. He 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 makes bread more bread. He makes fish more fish, right? When, when Jesus encounters um, the, the situation at the wedding at Cana, right? He, he takes something that, is al- that already exists in nature, namely water, right? And he turns it into fermented wine. And we might look at that and be like, well, that's arbitrary. Water doesn't turn into wine. Well, hold on, right? Um, when every year um, God causes it to rain, and the vine draws up water from the ground. 
And that water sustains the vine and allows the vine um, to turn that water into a juice, into a grape that's then crushed into a juice that ferments and becomes wine. Right? That, happens, that happens every year. There's a grape harvest. And, 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 and yet we, because we're so used to looking at the, the trees, we miss the forest as well. Because every day from creation until now, um, I'm sorry, every year from creation until now, God, God has been turning water into wine. Right? It's not an arbitrary thing. Jesus is, what, what Jesus is ultimately doing is he's showing us that he himself possesses the same kind of power, same kind of even creative power that, that his father has, and he's exercising it. Um, he's exercising what has always gone on on a large scale. He's just compressing it and speeding it up. You see what I'm saying? So um, the same kind of power that puts a fish into a river and that fish becomes more fish is the same one who stood on a hill in Palestine and took one fish and made it many fish. The same power that put the seed in the ground that grew into wheat that, that, that we then put together and made bread, right? Um, that same power, um, and, and then, and then the, the, the seeds go back into the ground and then that one piece of bread becomes what? More bread. That same power on a hill in Palestine, in Israel, in the first century, um, took that bread and he did what his father had always done from the creation of time until now. He took that and he made more bread. Right. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure they probably ate both, you know. But for sure in the Gospels, when we see people eating fish, it's tip, people are typically cooking it. Yeah. Um, but I, I guarantee you, if, if I was fishing all day and I didn't have anything on that boat to eat and I just caught a bunch of fish, I'd, I'd, I'd have a little sushi on that boat, you know. Um, yeah, I'm thinking of uh, I just, just this week, uh, uh, my wife and I had a movie night. We watched The Revenant. Anybody, anybody seen The Revenant, you know? But, uh, uh, but yeah, uh, DiCaprio's character, whatever, goes fishing. He pulls it out and just immediately eats it. I'm picturing that right now. Um, no. It, but no, it's, but it, are, 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 you understanding, are you understanding the nature of what, of, of what miracle is? Um, and, and what's fascinating is um, even the uh, Jesus raising people from the dead, um, you have a corpse, right? And, and no corpse is going to heal itself. Right, I mean, you can somebody can be alive. Like if I cut my arm, then I would be like, man, I need to put a little neosporin on that, a little band aid. And because I have a three year old, I have like Avenger band aids. You know, I got um, put a band aid on there, and then a couple days later, like it's healed itself. Well, did the neosporin heal my cut? No. Did the band aid heal my cut? No. Did my body heal itself? Yes. Right, because if I'm dead. If I'm laying in a morgue somewhere and you, and you cut me, then you can put all the neosporin and band-aids on it you want. It is not going to close itself back up, right? And so, I mean, just, I mean, medical doctors will tell you, like, um, no doctor heals anybody, right? All a doctor does is manipulate things to allow the body to give itself the best chance to heal itself, right? Um, no, doctors can cut and sew 
Um, but, and to use the, the terminology of a naturalist, but only there is some sort of life force energy inside of our bodies that heals itself, right? And if there is a God, and God is the source and sustainer of that life force that exists in every living being, then what would stop that life force if it came to the earth and touched a corpse to, to reinvigorate or, or um, make that life force come back to life in the thing that that life force is controlling anyway? Right? That's why when, 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 when dead things or when disease touch us, it transfers to us. Right? But when Jesus or God, um, Jesus is God, we believe, when, when God touches something that's dead or diseased, um, the disease and death does not transfer to him, life transfers to them. Right? Because when Jesus said in John fourteen six, like we looked at last week, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Right? All life is created and sustained by me. This is also why his one miracle of destruction, if you guys remember, um, he's, he, toward the end of his ministry, he's, um, he curses a fig tree. You guys remember this story, right? Um, and he goes by it and, and curses it. There's a lot of, uh, I think I even mentioned this last week, there's a lot of imagery into why he's cursing that fig tree. But, but he, um, he does something to it. And I think maybe even in, in the vein of, of what I'm talking about right now, I think it's probably even more accurate to say that it's not that he did something to the fig tree, it's just that he failed to do to the fig tree what he's always done to it. And that is to sustain it and keep it alive. Right? And, and what does it do? Immediately when he curses it and removes, his, and removes that life from it, it immediately what? It immediately withers and dies because it's no longer connected to um, that source of life. That's what, that's what miracle is in, in the New Testament. It's not some arbitrary fairy tale. It's, uh, what Jesus is showing us is that um, he possesses the power uh, that created and sustains and runs the entire universe, which is crazy. And then you might hear also this common mistake is, hey, we just lack measurable evidence, right? Well, my first, my first comment on that, yeah, do you have a question or? Yeah. Oh, perfect. Ask away. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that's, that's complicated. Um, I, I think ultimately, like, I don't, I don't think the, the argument or the Christian argument against stem cell research, research is not necessarily that, uh, we would take, uh, existing skin cells from a living human being that is self-contained and, and use those stem cells to further scientific research. I don't, think, I don't think a Christian would have any problem with that at all. I think the problem became is they were extracting stem cells from embryos, right? These are, these are um, what, what, what we would say, that obviously fertilized eggs that are frozen, a lot of IVF-type stuff that are left over, and, and them extracting the stem cell from the fertilized egg, which we would, as, at least I do as a Christian, believe that that's a, a living human being. Um, then, then uh, the process of extracting those stem cells destroys the human being. And that's where we, we're raising our hand going, wait, 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 that's out of bounds, right? So it's a sanctity of life issue. <clears throat> anyway, so this lack of measurable evidence, um, we're, 
Uh, one, I would say just by very nature, like when, if something is a miracle, then that by definition means that it's like not repeated a whole lot, right? <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't call it miracle. Um, so, uh, and, then, and then number two is, is I would just to tell the person, we don't have evidence for this. I would, again, tell them to look at the universe, which is interesting. I was listening to a guy who's a, a, an atheist uh, uh, He's an atheist philosopher, and he, the other day I was listening to a debate with him and a guy named William Lane Craig, and this guy w- was saying, he was like, man, we just need to keep asking the universe. We need to keep asking the universe, you know? And I was like, do you, do you hear the irony in your voice, <laughs> you know? Like, you need to ask the universe as if, you, as if the universe has the answers when really, I mean, ultimately he, he was talking about the universe as if it were a person, you know, which is really fascinating to me. But, but again, if you're only looking at miracle in the, you know, if, if you're missing the forest for the trees, then, then yeah, I mean, uh, someone might look at that and be like, well, there has to be an explanation for everything. And I'm like, but, but how do you explain the ex- uh, existence at all? Right? I, I think we'll always, as human beings, we'll always be baffled by our own existence. We'll always be baffled by the fact that, that I, and not only that, that we exist, but that we know that we exist. What the heck? That's crazy, you know? Have you ever thought about that? Think about that on the way home and just, you know? <clears throat> not only, I exist, and I know I exist. Ah! You know? Um, like one of Lewis's quotes in, in uh, I'm not sure if it's Miracles or maybe another essay in God on the Dock, but he said, uh, uh, he said, he said it, uh, the, the universe is so vast that it gives us this sense of terror. Uh, and, and it's not that, it, uh, and that sense of terror was, was uh, kind of unpacked and, and spoken about by a guy named Blaise Pascal. It's called, that's why they call it Pascal's Terror. And, and Pascal talked about the terror of the universe because it's so vast, right? And, and what's crazy is uh, you, you never see an ape or any other living thing um, look up at the night sky with a sense of wonder, right? Um, why? Because they don't know, they don't have the same uh, cognitive ability, they don't have that same sense of terror that, uh, to understand the greatness of the universe, and yet we do. So it is the greatness of God that created the greatness of the universe, but it's also the greatness of God that gave us the capacity to understand the greatness of the universe, Right? <clears throat> so lack of measurable evidence, I would just be like, hey, quit, 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 looking at the, um, quit looking at the trees to see the forest. Okay, let's look at the text for a little bit. Mark chapter 2. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark almost exclusively tonight. So get out your Bibles if you brought them. If you didn't bring your Bible, get out your phone and download a Bible and read the Bible. Hey, which by the way, I feel bad because we had that webinar last Friday and I didn't get to announce it this week. So I'm just going to announce it again. We had a webinar last Friday. (laughs) For some of y'all who are, this is your first night, you're like, what in the world? But for everybody else who's been here, uh, I like made a huge deal out of of that. Um, Did anybody listen to it? Come on, please. Okay, (laughs) nice. Um, That first 10 minutes when I was like totally fumbling over myself, um, we, check this out. So this is totally aside. We were in the studio room and everything runs off my computer because it's a web-based deal. It's the go-to webinar. So 
um, we had the, the microphones all plugged into my computer, and Nika, who was sitting right next to me, was like, hey, we need to test it. And I was like, ah, oh, I tested it like 30 minutes ago. We're good. And she was like, well, let's just do another test. All right, sweet. So, bam, hit record. We record it for like 10 seconds, and then listen back to it, and nothing. We could not hear anything. And, so, and it was like 11.58, and we go live at noon, you know. So if you were on there and you got kicked off and had to log back on, that's why, you know, because I was going, oh, my gosh, <laughs> you know, that, that's a miracle that we got it working, you know. Um, yeah, right there, brother, and that's what I'm talking about. So, <clears throat> so anyway, we finally, like, figured it out, and, it, and even the sound quality of it was not as good as the previous one, so we'll work on it. But anyway, if you listen to it, great. Hopefully you got something out of it. And uh, if you didn't listen to it, you can go back and listen to it once we post it on the website. Anyway, all right. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I actually read this account uh, last week, so I'm not going to read it all again. But basically, this is the account where Jesus makes the claim that he has the authority to forgive sin. That, that ultimately, and, and, and this is what he's showing, is that he has the authority to forgive sin. I'm going to paint the picture of it, though, just because, as we've been talking about in this class, I, I think it's important for us to do the best we can to try to put ourselves into the story so we experience the miracle as it happened. Um, and not just some gloss over like, okay, yeah, I forgave the guy. The guy, the guy. Okay, cool. Um, let's, 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 let's do the best we can to kind of in your mind's eye to, to see what was happening, to, to do the best we can to experience it. So Mark 2, um, his friends, this paralytic man comes, his friends bring him, they unlatch the roof, lower him down, and bring him to Jesus. Again, um, the, the, uh, when Jesus sees the, his, their friend's faith, um, he says to the paralytic, um, the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And here's what's fascinating. I didn't, I didn't talk about this last week, but, but Jesus says to the guy first, your sins are forgiven. Right? He's making a claim just about the man's sins. He hasn't said anything about the guy getting up and walking yet. Did you notice that? So, so his, first, his first comment to the paralytic doesn't have anything to do with the guy's paralysis. It has everything to do with the guy's spiritual condition and his separation and, and alienation from God. And so Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then, of course, uh, I mean, frankly, Jesus is setting, he's setting up the teachers of the law, right? He's like, well, I'm going to back you all into this corner real quick, you know? Because, like the text says, he knows what they're thinking. He knows that when he makes this claim, they're immediately going to be like, whoa, whoa, you're blaspheming. And frankly, guys, if we were there too and we were good Jews in the first century, we would be shocked by this claim as well. You're claiming that, the, that, the, that Yahweh, the, the God of the universe, who has walked with the, his people, set us apart, revealed himself to us, you're claiming that you're him? You're claiming that you have the same amount of authority as the Father to be able to forgive sins? Because you've got to remember, um, for the Jews, the only true, real forgiveness of sins came once a year at Yom Kippur. And when, when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies and made sacrifice there, sprinkled blood, prayed lit, like liturgical type you know, pre-written, pre-ordained prayers for the forgiveness of the people of Israel. And, the, and then the wrath of God passed over the people's sins for one year until he did it again, right? And people would have to bring sacrifices throughout the year, claiming the promise that Yahweh will once again forgive our sins on Yom Kippur. And yet Jesus shows up and is like, oh, no problem. Don't worry about that. I'll just do it right here, Right? 
And so you can understand the shock and the, and the, the dismay and even anger that these guys have toward this man, this mid-30s, mid-30-aged male from, from Nazareth and Galilee, right? Um, who says, son, your, and he calls the guy son, son, your sins are forgiven. And we take a step back and we're like, what? And, and, Jesus, and Jesus looks at the guys and is like, look, I know what you're thinking, guys, but which one is it easier for me to say? Do you want me to say that the guy's sins are forgiven? Or do you want me to show you that I have the authority to forgive sin and tell the guy to get up and walk? I don't really care. Which one do you want? But so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, I'm telling you, paralytic, get, take your mat, get up, and walk. And, and you got to understand, there's probably a pause there where the paralytic guy's even looking at him like, what? You know? <laughs> And, and everybody else in, the, in that compound where Jesus is teaching too, probably, I mean, just imagine yourself there, right? You're probably like, what? I mean, you're looking at the guy like, what are you going to do, <laughs> right? Um, and, and the teachers of the law, it's, it's, everybody is waiting to see what this guy does, right? Well, let's look at the text. I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Verse 12, and he got up. <laughs> And he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of everyone. Look, there's, there, the Lord does a really significant work, probably in everybody's hearts, um, at, at least in some of their hearts, we know. When, when Jesus says, um, your sins are forgiven, but what's easier for me to say, I tell you to, to get up, take your mat, and go home. And, and, um, and then the guy actually gets up, right? You're, you're kind of leaning in, looking at it like, what's it? oh, my. You know, and I'm, I, don't, I don't know. I wasn't there. But I, I bet you the guy probably, like, struggled a little bit and was just probably just because he's like, I've never used these before, you know? Um, I mean, we don't know how, why he was paralyzed. Maybe he, maybe he could use them and was paralyzed and then use them again. I, I don't know, but we know that, that, that he could not. He didn't have use of them, so he's probably trying to, I mean, he's getting his legs under him again. You know, and that's not just a metaphor, right? He really is getting his legs under him again. And, and, and we're sitting there going, okay, there, there's something significant about this, this amazing claim that Jesus just made. And now um, the shocking part of it that's like, look, man, I'm kind of separating myself from you because you just made a crazy claim about being like the, having the capacity to forgive sin. And now I don't know what to do with your claim because the guy actually got up and started walking. Um, now there's this like, um, what, I, what I like to call like this, this divine gap, right? Where you begin to realize like, okay, there's something unique about you. Um, other people are claiming things, but, but, you're, but you're making a claim and then you're backing it up by what you do. Let's look at another one. So Jesus has authority over sin. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. This is one of my favorite passages in, the whole, in all the Gospels. Jesus has authority over nature. Anybody have the Jesus Storybook Bible? Anybody? Nobody? Man. Oh. 
Well, yeah, that's because you gave it to me, dude. What in the world? <laughs> or no, you gave me thoughts to make your heart sing, which Nate, Nate's been loving that one lately. I'm like, Nate, which one do you want to read? You want to read Joseph's story, buddy? He's like, ah, oh, thoughts to make your heart sing. Anyway, <clears throat> um, there, uh, but the Jesus Storybook Bible is, is, uh, is a children's book, and this, this actual uh, story is in there, and, and the, the title of it is called The Captain of the Storm. Um, and I'll make a point about that in a second. That was just a random comment. <clears throat> but starting in verse 35, um, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. So they're on, um, they're on, the, uh, they're on the west side of Lake Kinneret, which is the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's about uh, 13 miles uh, from top to bottom and about, uh, I think, 9 to 11 miles across, right? It's, just, it's, it's a big lake. Um, but at any, at any point on the lake, you can see the other side. I mean, it's easy to see the other side. So it's not like this, it's not like, when you, if you think Sea of Galilee, it's not like an ocean, right? It's just a big lake. So he's on the, he's on the west side around Tiberias or, or, or Capernaum, and he's moving over to the east side, and, and I'll make a point about that in a minute. But he tells them, go out, um, let's go to the other side. I, I want to go to the east side of the lake. Um, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along um, just as he was in, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. All right, so it's, one, it's the boat that he's in and then a couple of other ones. Or when it says other, we don't know how many. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. But Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, right? The, the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So let's just picture this for a second, right? You're, you're with his disciples. You get in the boat with him. He's probably, he's probably tired. Just be, he's been with crowds of people. I'm sure they've pressed into him all day long. And he's like, hey, guys, I'm tired. Let's go to the other side of the lake. And so you get in the boat with him, and he immediately falls asleep. He's like, you know, which is kind of cool, too. It's like, you know, Jesus is sleeping. <laughs> I mean, you got to wonder about, like, what's, what's he just dreaming about, you know? Um, but whatever. That's a totally different deal. But he gets into the boat and f- immediately falls asleep. And you're kind of like, da 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 Well, if you've been to Israel, you know that on the east side of the lake is, is geographically, it's, there are mountains there. Um, and that, those mountains are called the Golan Heights. And the Golan Heights are, is kind of this cliff that plateaus and then goes down into another like kind of rolling mountain range. And so wind would, wind would sweep across the, that plain and go down that cliff and then hit that water so that there would be a pretty fierce storm if the winds picked up. There could be a pretty fierce you know, squall or storm like it talked about pretty quickly. And so you're rowing across the lake, you get out in the middle of the lake, and all of a sudden, one of those wind bursts comes down, and you're all of a sudden in a storm. And not only that, you're also taking on water in the boat. So have you guys seen a first century Jewish fishing boat? All right. it, um, you can go look, look, Google it online. You'll probably get the, what they call the Jesus boat. Um, so a, a few decades ago, the, uh, there was a drought in, in northern Israel, and the water level of the Sea of Galilee dropped like 20, 25 feet or something like that, enough to where they could go out into the mud and kind of look around for stuff. And when it did, they went out into the middle of the mud, and they found a first century Jewish fishing boat, right? So they were like, Awesome, but we work. We better work really hard to like extract this from the mud, so in, in case the water level goes up. So they did. They extracted it. You can go see it today. It's on. It's uh, uh, It's just north of Tiberias, uh, in a museum. It's the Jesus Boat Museum, but it's probably. I mean, the boat. The boat's probably about as long as the stage is, okay? And it's and it's maybe a little less wide than the stage is. So you could probably. I mean, you could fit. 
you know, a handful of dudes in there, sail, that kind of thing, but they also use it, obviously, for fishing. And so that one of the reasons I love this picture is because I, I think that boat is fairly historically accurate when it comes to uh, the size of the boat and that sort of thing, and also just because the picture's awesome. <clears throat> and, and, uh, but you're out there in this boat, and you start to take on water, and, and as, a, as one of the people in the boat, you're like, come on, man. But you also know that Jesus has been doing extraordinary things. So if anybody's going to save you this, from this situation, you're like, look, our best bet is this guy that's asleep. So let's wake him up, right? So, <clears throat> hey, teacher, rabbi, don't you care that we drown? Um, and, and you have no idea what, what's going to happen. You don't, I mean, you don't know if he's going like, to get up and be like, oh, dude, throw me a bucket, you know, and start um, heaving water out of, out of the thing. You don't know if he's going like, to turn into super strength and like, row you to the other side. I mean, you don't know. You're just saying, hey, don't you care if we drown? And he got up and does something crazy, right? He gets up, and he's not, he's not bailing water out of the boat, and he doesn't grab an oar. He just stands up. And then he talks to the wind and the waves. And you're, I mean, you, you got to just put yourself there. You, you had to, I mean, when the guy stands up and starts, and he probably shouted at the wind and the waves, right? Um, in fact, um, let me see. Uh, what's the, no, it just says said. Ah, oh, dang. I'm, I'm assuming that maybe he shouted, right? <laughs> but <clears throat> I think the word, the word there is actually just says, he, he said to, the wind and the waves. But, but it's probably chaotic. He, he maybe raised his voice to the wind and the waves, and, and, all, and he begins to speak to the storm. And as the guy that's in the boat, you're like, what are you doing, man? Grab a bucket, you know? What are you doing? Help us. Stop, talk, stop talking to the wind, you know? And, and, uh, and yet, when he stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves, and, he's, and, he, and, and he says, peace, be still. Right? And in the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I love, if you have small children, I recommend that you get it and read it to them. But in the Jesus Storybook Bible, it says the most amazing thing happened. The wind and the waves, um, they recognized his voice. Of course they did. It was the same voice that made them in the beginning. Right. And as the person in the boat who's struggling against the waves the crazy guy, right, stands up and starts speaking to the storm. But then an even crazier thing happens that the storm listens to him and obeys him. Right. And, and, and I love the, the imagery that Mark chooses to use um, to, to where he says um, in, in the story, the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Right? That's what I love about that picture. Um, there's a reflection in the water. Did you notice that about the picture? Um, the, the, the water is glass. You guys, you guys like to ski? You, know, you ever go out early in the morning? Um, not, not snow ski, you know what I mean? Like water ski. I'm from Arkansas. I told you guys that, and all y'all booed at me, right? <clears throat> and... Uh, I've been praying. For, I've been praying about that, but uh, but I'm from Arkansas, and if you've never been to Arkansas and you like water skiing, you should go to Arkansas. Some of the best lakes in the country are there. And man, we would go out. Um, my cousin owns a, a lake house on one of the lakes in Arkansas. We'd go out early in the morning, and and uh, man, that's the best time. It is the best time to ski. 
So you get out there right as the sun's coming up, and it is glass. And you're like, dude, crank it up, man. Let's go. And, and it's, it's that kind of water. That's, it's just perfectly calm. You almost feel like it's a, it's a sin to like mistake it, or, or mistake it, <laughs> to, to, uh, uh, to disturb it, right? It's, it's, it, and, and I think that that's where, the, obviously, as, as Mark continues the story, uh, Jesus turns to his disciples and he's like, guys, why are you afraid? Um, after, after the things that I've done, like, do, you, do you still lack faith? And verse 41, they were what? They were terrified. Anybody empathize with that if you were there? I know I would. I would be terrified. And they asked themselves, um, who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? So Jesus is not only showing that he has authority over sin, he's also showing us he has authority over nature. Then, check this out, Um, Jesus gets over to the other side, so we'll pick up the story in the next verse, right? Mark chapter 5, verse 1 to 20. I am going to read this. They went across the lake, so now they're on the east side in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and nobody could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Dude's crazy, right? When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Okay, again, you're with Jesus. You're in the boat. You've just seen him calm a storm. So that, I'm sure that terror that they were feeling in their hearts had probably not subsided yet. Because as soon as they got over to the other side, this crazy dude who, frankly, this wasn't the disciples' first time to go to the east side, to the region of the Gerasenes. And even if it was, I guarantee you they've heard of this dude. Because there's, number one, it's not that big around the lake. And number two, um, you pretty much knew, one, there's tombs over there. And two, there's a crazy guy that lives in the tombs that nobody can bind. And so Jesus gets out of the boat, and you see this guy. I mean, we don't know. I mean, it says he, he, he came to him. Um, I don't know if he's like sprinting to him or if he's moving, but the guy's coming toward him. And I guarantee you, as the guy's coming toward him, that fear and terror about who Jesus is is probably still in your hearts. And now there's another reason to be afraid with this guy coming out of the tombs running towards Jesus. I would have stayed in the boat. And I probably would have like pushed out like 20 or 30 yards just to be like, I don't know what's going to happen, right? But then something really crazy happens that as the guy comes to Jesus, this is what he says. He falls, uh, uh, he ran, so it is, he ran to Jesus, fell on his knees in front of him and shouted at the top of his voice. Now, I know last time, like when I was ta- telling the, Ma- the John 7 story and I kind of yelled in here, some of y'all were like, ah, you know, you, you just, from, from my perspective, you should just see yourself, <laughs> right? So I'm not going to yell at the top of my voice. <clears throat> You're welcome. All right. But, but he shouted, it says, the text says, he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Okay. Um, Jesus has been saying some crazy things, but now the crazy dude is saying crazy things about Jesus. 
And, and, and your, your sense of dismay about all of this stuff is deepening. Um, you're like, what? Did I, did, I hear what I, did, I, did I hear what I just think I heard? Swear to God that you won't torture me. What? For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus, then Jesus starts talking not to the man, he starts talking to the spirits that live inside of the man. Right? You wanna, th- this is like way better than like the exorcist, right? <clears throat> and, and, and the spirit replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. So now you see a a demoniac, someone who is possessed by evil spirits, subjecting himself to Jesus and begging Jesus as a slave begs his master to, to, to not be driven out of the area. And you're watching this. If it's me, I'm watching it from the boat, <laughs> right? Um, but still on, on, out in the water, a, a good distance where I'm watching this thing happen. And, and yet Jesus is not flustered at all. He's not afraid. There's no kind of sense of caution about this guy. If anything, I, you know, when I picture it in my own mind, given what I believe about the character and nature of Jesus, uh, I almost see um, a, um, a compassion for the man to pull him in and a fierceness to push out the evil. Right? I'm going lo- to lovingly draw you in and I'm going to command the evil spirits to get out. Right? Both at the same time. A, a large herd of pigs was feeding on a, a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. And the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and they were drowned. I'll stop there. The, the, the story continues. I'll let you read it later. But, but I want to make a couple of points about this. One, um, the spirits are, it's not like Jesus is sitting there going, come on, guys, bow down before me. All right, guys, now he's, he's not manipulating the situation at all. They are presenting themselves before him and begging him. Right? He clearly has authority over the entire situation. He's not flustered at all. And what's crazy and what's crazy ironic about it, if you read the rest of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6, right, um, when Jesus is on his way back over, I just want to make sure I wasn't planning on talking about this. No, I'm not. Okay. When Jesus is on his way back over to um, the other side, um, he sends his disciples out in front of him. And then in the middle of the night, as they're rowing back to the other side, what does he do? He walks on the water out to them. Right, so picture this, because Mark is he's teaching us something theological with the progression of these miracles. Jesus is on his way to meet, and I believe very intentionally meet a man who has thousands of demons in him. And oh, by the way, on his way over there, there just happens to be a storm that tries to stop him from getting over to the other side. Right, 
And Jesus stands up and speaks to this storm and says, hush, be still, be quiet. He rebukes it. He rebukes it. And the storm stops. So it's, it's like Jesus is like, look, dude, I know you're trying to stop me from getting over there, but you can't. And then he gets to the other side and the demons subject themselves to him and he casts them out into an unclean animal and the unclean animals run down into the lake and they're drowned. And in case you didn't catch that Jesus has authority over this whole situation, on his way back over to the other side, he's trouncing on their grave. I'm just going to walk I'm going to walk all over you. Jesus has authority. He's demonstrating that he has authority. He's not just making outstanding claims about himself. He's doing things about it that are extraordinary. And if you're paying attention, then it's saying something to you. Next, Mark 5, 21 to 34. Jesus has authority over disease. There's, there's, there's two sections here. This is a long section, so I'm just going to paraphrase it and kind of summarize it for you. <clears throat> but it says this. Um, in Mark 5, there's, there's two different people who are healed here. One of them is a hemorrhaging woman, and then the other one we'll talk about um, uh, next is a young girl, Jairus' daughter, to be specific. But this, but this woman who's been afflicted by a disease for a lot of her life comes up to him and, and is, is afraid because she spent like her life savings on doctors to try to be healed. Uh, it says that she's been hemorrhaging for how long? What does the text say? 12 years. Yeah, I want to say 13, but yeah, because the daughter is also 12 years old. Right? She'd suffered greatly, um, uh, a great deal under the care of, of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she, was wor- she got worse, right? But, but in her mind, she was like, I, but, but I think that this guy can help me, right? She has faith. Um, so one of, one of, the, um, uh, one of the things that, that's a consistent theme in the Gospels is that people are consistently amazed by Jesus, Right? If you pay attention to the Gospels, it'll say, you know, and they were amazed at, what, at his teaching. They were amazed at what he did. They were amazed at this because they'd never seen it before, right? People are consistently amazed at Jesus. Do you know what amazes Jesus? It's one word. One word amazes Jesus. Does anybody know what it is? Faith. And this woman has it. She has faith. And she comes up in the midst of a crowd. You've got to understand, like, Jesus is moving through a crowd of people, and the people are scrunching up against him and uh, all this stuff. And, and she probably knows who he is. Um, by She's able to identify him, one, because everybody's squeezing around him. But two, he's probably wearing the robe and the tassel of a rabbi, some, someone who's a teacher. And she's thinking, if I can just touch the edge of his cloak, the bottom tassel of, his, of, of the thing that, that, that denotes him as a rabbi, if I could just touch that, then, then, then I think something might happen. And what's crazy is she reaches out and grabs it, right? And is immediately healed of her affliction that she's had for over a decade, right? For 12 years. And, and what's even crazier is that Jesus is like, who touched me? <laughs> right? And, and his disciples, I mean, he's, he, we'll just read it. Um, he, he turned around in the crowd and asked, this is verse 30, who touched my clothes? <laughs> and, and his disciples uh, 
said, you see the people crowding against you and, and you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, because she knew, like, I'm not, I feel a lot better, <laughs> right? Came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering, right? Um, and so Jesus is showing not only that he has power over sin, not only he has power over nature, not only he has power over, disease, over the spirit realm, he also has authority over disease. If you touch Jesus, right, then it's not your, like I said before, it's not your disease transferring to him. It's his life transferring to you. It's the great reversal Right? He is encountering the, the, the futility and the subjection and the decay of creation that's marred by sin. And he's reversing it. That's crazy. And then lastly, because I want to give you guys a little bit of time to unpack this. Jesus has authority over death. Again, um, if, we, if you continue to read in Mark 5, he goes to Jairus' daughter, um, but... but and, and actually raises her from the dead. But the one I want to look at um, to, to leave Mark just for a little bit is John 11. I keep saying that this is my favorite passage in the Gospels, and that's because I have a lot of favorite ones, which kind of totally defeats the idea of favorite. But it's like my sister growing up. I'd be like, uh, <laughs> this is, I'm not even going to say it. But, um, <clears throat> my, uh, well, because we call my sister woman, right? I know a lot of you, the females are like, you've chauvin as pig, right? <laughs> Um, and the reason she got that name is because when my other brother, uh, John, I have two older brothers, but one of my brothers, when we were small children, he got angry at her, and in his anger, he forgot her name. And, <clears throat> and was just like, woman, you know? And that stuck. <laughs> and she loves it. Like, in high school, it's playing sports. You get your name on the back. Her, the back, back of her jersey said, woman. <clears throat> so that just became, and still to this day, we like, show up at holidays. What's up, woman? And everybody's like, seriously? But anyway, um, I used to ask woman, <laughs> my, my sister, I used to ask my sister growing up, I was like, hey, you know, um, who's that? Oh, it's my best friend. Oh, that's cool. Who's that? Oh, that's my best friend. Who's that? Oh, it's my best friend. Um, she had like 30 best friends. And I was like, I don't think you understand what best means, but that's all right. So um, starting in verse 38 of, of John chapter 11, Jesus once, uh, once more deeply moved and again, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. So again, Jesus had, had already talked to Martha, like we talked about last, uh, last week, and he had already said, I am the resurrection and the life, right? So he's claiming to be the resurrection and the life, but then he goes to the tomb. And in verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been there for four days, right? They'd already rolled the stone. They'd already sealed it. He wasn't just dead. He was dead, dead, all right? There was no, uh, there was no illusion of like him being in a coma or him being like, this dude's dead, okay? And, and Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and, and I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of everybody standing here, that they would believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus cried out in a loud voice and said, Lazarus, come out. Again, let's put ourselves there, right? 
You've been following this. You heard Jesus make that claim, I am the resurrection and the life. And you're like, what? Like, I've seen you do some amazing things, but this is seriously, right? And, and, and Jesus goes and to the tomb. And now, I mean, even Martha, who's like good friends with Jesus, is like, why are you having us do this? Can you imagine that? Your loved one had died, and then Jesus, your friend, comes up and is like, hey, roll away his stone, the, the stone that's covering. This is a disgraceful thing to do, right? You, you are, um, you're violating the tomb of a loved one. I mean, it would, be like, it would be like one of us going and being like, hey, man, I know, I know your brother died, and it's really sad, but let's go dig up his grave, you know? Um, you're like, really? Um, there's a shock value to that, right? But Jesus um, is standing there and he cries out in a loud voice and we know there's a crowd there, right? Because this is a pivotal moment even in the life of Jesus um, who from this point forward, the religious leaders go back to Jerusalem and they begin to plot to take his life, right? So Jesus is standing at the, at the tomb and you're, you're probably, you know, maybe he's, he's out in front of everybody in the tomb and you're just kind of like, okay, this is awkward. People are crying. It's distress. You know, people are distressed, all this stuff. And then Jesus begins to speak. Now he's not speaking to a storm. He's speaking to a corpse. Okay. And, and, and by this time, let's be honest, we've, we as his disciples have seen him do enough stuff that we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we're, not, we're definitely not putting it past him that, that the dead guy might even come out of that tomb, okay? Because we've seen everything else that he's done. He's making claims about himself, but then he's backing up his claims. And so when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, I mean, there, again, there's a pause, right? And you're looking at the entrance to the tomb, and you're just kind of like, I don't know what's going to happen. But the text tells us what happened. the dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth was around his face. So you have to imagine, in Lazarus, poor Lazarus, right? I mean, um, well, that's a whole other theological discussion we can have on the side if you want. But what, all he knows is, is that he's now alive again and he's bound, right? And, and he's like struggling to make it out of the tomb. But here he comes under his own power. He is no longer dead. The, his heart that had, been, that had been created and sustained by the love of God his entire life stopped beating, and then the love of God made it start beating again. And God can do that because he has authority over death. Jesus even says about himself, nobody takes my life away from me. I lay it down and I also can take it up again. So just like he's engaging with the impure spirits, he's also saying, look, if death wants to try to take me, it can't do it. I have to subject myself to death and I also have the authority to take my life up again. He has the authority to do this. And so we are faced with the, the question. Because look, um, it's one thing if Kobe Bryant walks in uh, to, or, or LeBron James or someone like Michael Jordan walks into a basketball court and was like, hey guys, who wants to play? Right? And you're like, ah. No, not really. Why? I mean, and his claim is, look, I can school all of you guys. 
You guys are like, yes, we believe you, right? It's a whole other thing if, if two left-hand Nathan Wagnon, who played football, you know, walks into a basketball court and is like, I can school you guys. Probably a lot of you guys would be like, I'll take that bet. <laughs> you know, it, it's one thing when I make a claim about myself that I can't really back up. It's a whole other thing when Michael Jordan walks in and makes the same claim. Why? Because you know in your mind you can back it up. The claim is legitimate. And so look, regardless of your view on naturalism or whatever, here is what the Gospels are teaching us, is that there was a man 2,000 years ago who walked among us. He claimed extraordinary things about himself that totally set him apart. But frankly, it didn't set him apart in such a way that he was the only one who ever did that. There were plenty of other people who made crazy claims. However, he is the only one who made the claims that he made and did the type of things that he did. That is why he's unique. And so the question that he asked his disciples that frankly we have to ask ourselves as well is, what about you? Who do you say that I am? That is the question. Everybody, um, everybody with a heartbeat, right? Um, who has knowledge of Jesus answers this question. And a passive, I don't know, that's an answer. And, and what I'm telling you is, look, um, for, for all of us, regardless of, of where we are in our lives, um, I, I think that Jesus coming, Jesus, um, the question is ever before us. Who do you say that Jesus is? Um, is he just a man? Is he um, just another false Messiah? Or is he something more than that? And I wish that we had time to talk about that at our tables. <laughs> um, but I took a little bit too long walking through those stories. Um, so I, I'm, I'll tell you what, I'm going to tie all this up. And then if you'd like to stay for a few minutes afterwards and just kind of unpack it among your tables, I would encourage you to do that. But we only have about three minutes left. So um, I, I'm going to make this point, all right, and we'll be done. God is spirit. Um, when, when the creation of the world occurs, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God moved over the surface of the waters, right? There's this chaos, and yet out of this, this chaos, um, God, who is Spirit, who, who we cannot imagine at all. Has anybody re been reading Yancey's book? Um, it's a good book, isn't it, right? Hey, did y'all read the part in the book where he, where he sees the fishbowl, right? Um, that's, that's good. Thank you. I'm glad you did. Me too. <laughs> um, he sees the fish bowl. And, and when he, he goes to feed the fish, the fish always scatter, right? They're afraid of him. And, and, and he, uh, he's like, man, I, I just want to feed you guys. Right? And, and yet they don't know what to do with him because he's not like them at all. They have no capacity to understand who a human being is. 
And so Yancey just made, made the observation that he's like, man, I, I really want to communicate to them that I love them, that I want to provide for them, that I want to feed them. And then it hit him. In order for me to do that, I would have to become a fish. In order to accurately communicate um, what a human being is like and the fact that the human being wants to love and provide and feed you, in order for me to do that, I have to become a fish. And the incarnation all of a sudden made sense to Yancey. Because God, who is not like us at all, he is totally holy. Our, our highest concept does, is not even in the same ballpark to even begin to describe the character and nature of God. The best we can do is compare him to a shepherd and a rock. Right? That is because that's what we can conceive. And here is the miracle. If, if Jesus is who he said he was, if he claimed these things and then, and then did these things that was, and you're paying attention, that they're signposts to show you something about who he is. And here's who he is. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. We saw him. We beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. C.S. Lewis Jesus' works, don't, they don't take us away from reality. Right? It's not a suspension of reality. What Jesus is doing is he's recalling us to reality. He's recalling us from our dream world of ifs and ands to the stunning actuality of everything that's real. They are focal points at which more reality becomes visible than we ordinarily see at once. What's happening is that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And when he's raising the dead and healing disease and and walking on the water and casting out demons, what he's doing is he's showing us, hey guys, the world you live in is broken. You're subjected to disease and death and chaos and evil spirits who want to steal from you and kill you and destroy you. And the works of Jesus are going, look, guys, I'm going to peel back a curtain so you can see beyond that to what is actually real. To what's waiting for you. If you put your faith in me, I will raise you from the dead. This world is not natural. This world is unnatural. It's, it's, it's subjected to entropy and decay and death. The only natural thing is what Jesus is showing us when he shows us that he has authority over everything that we don't have authority over. And he's, and he's ultimately inviting us again to come to me. Come. And I'll show you something that you can only dream about. The new heavens, the new earth where sin is gone and you live with me forever. Yeah. Amen. Right. <clears throat> hey, next week, uh, I'm going to be gone. So I'll be in Haiti. Y'all can pray for me. I'm going to, uh, me and three other guys from Watermark are going down to, to a, a, 
do a host a pastor's conference for about 250 Haitian pastors, and they're going to be equipping them over the next week. So pray for me. Um, but one of my buddies, uh, Derek Matthews, who is about to graduate from Dallas Seminary, he's done a lot of work on the life of Christ. I've invited him to come uh, teach next time. So I'd encourage you to come back, please. He's going to talk to you about, hey, um, now that I think it's fairly uh, firmly established, at least, um, that the Gospels are proclaiming that Jesus actually is God, then I think we ought to pay attention to what he teaches us. Um, so next week, he's going to talk about the message of Jesus. I hope you guys have a great night. If you have questions, you can come grab me, talk to me. And if you want to talk amongst your table, I would invite you to do so as well. All right? You'll have a great night.